are uh, in the book of Exodus. We're in the Parshat Tetzaveh. <clears throat> Somebody, so we are, we've built the, I mean, we've gotten the instructions to build the Mishkan, right? And so now um, we're getting the instructions about how we've, we've dealt with the sacred space and the sacred utensils and the rituals. Now we're getting to the instruction about how the vessels, the human vessels, are to be consecrated to God's service, right? They are to be kadosh, they are to be set apart, set aside, dedicated for divine service only and always, right? That is their life. So they will become clay kodesh, they will become sacred vessels, um, and so they too must be consecrated to um, God's service. So we're getting the description of that, of the consecration of Aaron and his sons as the priests. And we're in the midst of the uh, instructions about what are the uh, sacrifices that are to be offered at that time. So somebody want to begin at 15? Next, take the one ram and let Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the ram's head. Slaughter the ram and take its blood and dash it against all sides of the altar. Cut up the ram into sections, wash its entrails and legs, and put them with its quarters and its head. Turn all of the ram into smoke upon the altar. It is a burnt offering to Adonai, a pleasing odor, an offering by fire to Adonai. Go on. Then take the other ram and let Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the ram's head. Slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear and on the ridges of (coughs) his son's right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and dash the rest of the blood against every side of the altar round about. Take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle upon Aaron and his vestments and also upon his sons and his son's vestments. Thus shall he and his vestments be holy, as well as his sons and his son's vestments. All right. <clears throat> so we've talked before at great length about blood in our, in our ancient Israelite understanding. Blood is the life force. Blood is the only thing strong enough, because it is the life force, it is the only thing strong enough to cleanse an area, a space, of the contamination caused by sin. It is the only counterforce powerful enough to be the detergent to clear away the residue of sin. If the residue of sin builds up, it is extraordinarily dangerous because it means that the sacred presence of the divine cannot dwell among the people because it cannot be where there is contamination. If God's presence doesn't dwell among the people, it leaves them vulnerable to attack, right, to all kinds of things that they understood um, could happen if God's presence did not dwell in their midst. So the space has to be cleansed by blood. That is the point of sacrifice, of cleansing the space of the residue of sin because the residue is drawn towards the sacred. So it's got to be cleansed from the sacred space. Zach? So they're building the tabernacle now. What has caused the Mishkan to be um, uh, uh, 
not pure? Or, or, or ha, 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 ha. Why, is, why do they have to do that in order to cleanse it if my assumption is that the Mishkan would not be impure at this point? Very good question. So some, thank you, some folks answer that because it is made of uh, material and because human beings fashioned it, by definition, there's going to be some, yeah, yeah. some form, some way in which it is okay. not tainted. It tainted, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we're all sure. sinful yeah. and nobody's perfect. So um, just to be sure. And so it's, it's to assume that there's, you know, that there's something that's gone on and so they have to be cleansed. Um, in the case of Aaron and his sons, um, they bring an offering to, to be in right relationship, right? So to be forgiven, because it's assumed they will have sinned. Um, but, this, but then there's the difference of consecrating them. So, um, so there's a question in the literature about, around these rituals. There's a question about, is this purgatory or is this consecratory? <laughs> And it's unclear. We don't know. Because Torah isn't going to investigate for us, what is the origin of this? What exactly does it mean? Right? It just presents it. We have to look at other near, ancient Near Eastern traditions and other <clears throat> people's uh, literature about these rituals to get a sense of it. But is it kapara that's happening? Or is it um, that this is how they become kadosh? And it seems that it's a little bit of both. To purge. To purge. That's what you do in purgatory in the Christian tradition. You're purged of your sins. It's also also an adjective. Something can be a purgative. A purgative is like a a medication that you take to purge. This all sounds very much, I was thinking of the Catholic Church the other night. This sounds very, very much where Catholicism is right now, except not the land. Correct. So that for them, the life force, the blood, right, remains a form, the form of atonement, right? They drink the blood of Jesus so that they can access that um, blood that performed the um, kapara, the atonement. And the, and the host is, and the host is the, the flesh. The, the so the way we would have eaten these sacrifices, they eat the sacrifice of Jesus. So that is exactly this theology with some reconstruction. Right? What does the word kapara mean? You know, when I do my PhD thesis, um, I'm going to study what that word means because I remain confused by the word. The word can mean atonement, but there's a sense of something standing in for what should have happened to you because of the rupture of sin. So I'm, uncle- so I'm a little unclear as well, you know, but it seems that there's a substitution made, in this case sacrifice, in order that I escape that fate. Does that make sense? It, it stands in for me, and I get to go clear. That's, that's my sense of it, but there are other um, biblical interpreters who 
who see it a little bit differently. So I, I would love, frankly, to study it more and, and get my head around it a little more. Well, I mean, that's very Jesus. Yeah. Right. So totally they get that. Yeah. There are other... There are other ways of understanding kapara that don't that don't mean it's a substitute for me. Mm-hmm. So and at mm-hmm. this point, Aaron still has his four sons are alive. Yes. Yes. All right. Because these are just instructions. Nothing's happening yet. Nothing's happening. It won't be happening until we get it. Till the erection of the Mishkan happens, right? This is all just instructions. So we get all of this twice. We get all of the instructions, and then in another book of the Torah, we get all the descriptions of it being done. So it's twice we get all these details. Scholars point to this as, okay, there's got to be something here historically, right, based because of all the details and because of how much they're repeated, other people say no, so that we can remember the fantasy, right? It's just, it's just so that we don't forget the details of our fantasy. We're all new to Torah study, Margot. No, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, um, last week you said something about the, well, the building of the Mishkan takes place further ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And where does it take place? In the desert. I know, no, no, not specifically where, but in what part of our Torah? Numbers. Numbers. Yes. I think. <laughs> I think. No. I think it's numbers, isn't it? Oh, Leviticus? Numbers? Leviticus. Is it Leviticus? No? Okay. Leviticus is all. All right. So, um, you know, the, I, I'm always impressed with Christians who can tell you chapter and verse. Like, I'm always like, uh, I don't know, it's in one of the five. I remember reading it somewhere. Um, all right, so let's look at um, this idea that, so here, here, Reuben goes to your point. Take a ram, verse 15. And let Aaron and his sons lay their hands upon the ram's head. Why? It's the transfer of what? The ram's parents. Their guilt to the ram. So if I'm guilty, I take my hands, I put it on the ram's head, and I transfer my guilt, my, what I owe, cosmically, right, to the ram, so that when it dies and is consumed, I'm, I'm, I'm free. But why would you want to eat a ram that has your sin? Because it's done, it's done. Once it's dead and it's offered on the altar, it is, it is now a way that we draw close to God. It is not sinful. So it, that, the death of that animal takes care of it. The blood takes care of it. If it were only that easy. If it were only that easy. Now it's easier. Now you just cast bread on the water. So sometimes there are some scholars who believe that's what's going on here. is a shifting, a transfer of, right, the the guilt from me to it. Other scholars understand this to be um, a way of saying, this animal is mine. It's ownership. I identified this animal as mine. And that is how I give it over to the priest. I have to claim it as mine first. And then I say, therefore, I have the authority 
to give it to God and to the priests. So it's about ownership. Other scholars uh, understand this um, to be uh, a, a transfer of, in the case of human beings, it is a transfer, some people believe, of authority. So we've got the heads of the animals. Is it related to on the heads of humans? It might be. If so, how? That's an interesting question. But we do see the laying on of the hands of Moses to Joshua, right? So we see this done. This is smicha. This is the origin of smicha in um, the other branches of Judaism. Um, Only one Judaism. Ordination? Ordination, right? The blessing of the children. Sure. So blessing of the children. So this is fascinating to me. If there's a relationship between the laying on of hands, the animal for sacrifice, and laying the hands on the head of our children, what is it? Very interesting. Very interesting. Not passing your sins off to your little God forbid. God forbid a hundred times. So that's exactly. what. So that's when you go. Hmm. So it's not the transfer of authority. But it could be that from that transfer of authority, originally that being the ritual, there is this sense that I'm transferring something. I'm transferring blessing. Right? So I have the authority by placing my hands on you. I'm identifying that you are the recipient and I have the authority to bless you. That's kind of, that's intense. I don't know. Lisa, with this torture slitting throats thing. Um, Right there. But like many things, it it can evolve over the years. There are many things that started out meaning one thing, and then, you know, 500 years later they meant something else, and then 500 years later they meant something else. And And it can mean the same thing simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes mean transferring God, sometimes, you know. But you have the blessing of the Kohen, excuse me, the Kohen's blessing the people, which I think would be more similar to the parents with the child. So at the installation of the Levites, we're going to get it. And the Levites then do it to the people. Because it was done to them, they have the authority to do it to others. Right? Pam? Um, I've always felt that part of this is when you're putting your full weight, you are touching the animal, you are really getting a sense of this is a living, breathing being. It's very serious. The little Baba the lamb that someone maybe loves. And, you know... And you're going to kill this. That uh, that you take it very seriously. That it is a death of a of a living thing. And there's seriously, you're actually feeling its life force right there with your hands. And and think about that. Yeah. When you eat meat. Yes. When you eat uh, chicken, yes. right? So it's that's how they ate meat and ate chicken. Was you? Know, and so you do that. That's right. You feel the pulse. Yeah. You feel the warmth. And then you consume it. And so for us, we have really no relationship to that. I was just talking about this with a bat mitzvah student that I bought you know, a big package of chicken that was on sale at Ralph's. I had these Israeli soldiers staying with me. I thought, okay, great, it's on sale. You know, and we got busy and we, and what do you think happened, right? I forgot to put it in the freezer. <laughs> and it's like a big package. And like there was this moment, having been studying these texts, that I was so aware of the, the waste, right? And that we have no connection anymore to 
something that was alive a minute ago died for me to eat chicken tonight. And or in this case, to uh, get, alleviate the sin. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is, you know, so d- exactly right. That, that it, there are serious consequences yes. to our sinful behavior. Exactly right. So I think definitely that is part of the origin of why you have to touch it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, so it is we're going to watch these, you know, laying on of hands. So on the, on the animal later on, on the Levites. So the, the other thing, I'll, and I'll we'll move on after this, is that I do sometimes when I'm blessing Ellie, I do get this sense of let me not transfer my sins onto this child. Like, let me not damage her out of my own pain, out of my own brokenness, out of my own weaknesses, out of my own fragility and my own sorrow. Let me not, let me not transfer that onto her. You know, let me transfer, just a minute, let me transfer blessing and goodness and the best of me and the best of our tradition. And I'm aware that it is tied to sacrifice. I mean, I've just been doing this too long not to put my hands on her head and not know it's tied to sacrifice. Let her not be a sacrifice, right? For anything that I have done or left undone or left unrepaired. Um, because they are, right? They get sacrificed. They get, they get offered up too many times out of our own, out of our sinfulness, out of our sinful behavior. Mickey? Somewhere along the line in my past, I understood or was taught that the uh, parents uh, uh, absorb the sins of the child until they become bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah. Correct. And that's the relief they get. Correct. There's a blessing that's said at the bar mitzvah, because traditionally there isn't a bat mitzvah. At the bar mitzvah, the parents say a blessing saying, thank you, God, that this child is no longer my responsibility. <laughs> thank you that, I, that now... It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's that, an old prayer. It's a very old prayer. That now they're responsible for their behaviors and the sin that they incur is theirs alone, right? But what I love about our tradition is that there is no understanding that a child is capable of sin. Truly to take responsibility. They're capable of wrongdoing, but they are not responsible for this, the impact of that sinful behavior because they're too young to understand the consequences of that behavior. That the ickiness is on the parents who didn't intervene, who didn't teach better, who didn't, who wasn't home enough, right? To whatever, you know, fill in the blank. At 13, they need to deal with those things and figure out how to go forward anyway. But, but I love that about our tradition, that you know, there's no first confession at the age of six. Because you... At six, you can't. You haven't. You haven't sinned. But our our meaning American English our legal system still recognizes that. Correct. To some extent. We don't. We don't. Uh, in general, we don't penalize the parents. Right. We may. We may send the child to a facility which is not a full blown prison, but we recognize that distinction between sending them to the same type of place that you would send an adult and a place where there may be a chance to rehabilitate the child. And that's why Rabbi Rubin is so passionate about this idea of, you know, 
of youth in prison, you know, mm -hmm. of, of, you know, crimes that, you know, that they're not, their frontal lobes aren't fully formed and they, they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Really? Is that really what's good for them, for society, for any of us? Zach, did you want to say something? Okay. <laughs> Mickey Zussman, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, um, what you just said now was, um, what you were talking about before, I think whether we consciously think about it or not, I think all parents have that feeling or fear or something that their Michigas, you know, their kids should have different Michigas, not their own. Right. And as far as the um, children spending life, I, in New York the driving age is 18, and since it's come out now that the, the children that age, before that their brains aren't fully, I'm thinking maybe we should change the driving age. To 35. To <laughs> totally. But there was restriction. <clears throat> right, exactly. I'm with you 100%. Ruben? Uh, way back in my childhood, maybe before I even went to school, I remember a, a custom, a rite, where it was called Shogun Kapuras. Yes, Kapuras. Now, I never did understand what it was, but they used a live chicken. chicken? Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't alive for long. Can you explain they, that? They took they, the chicken and they shep, you know, the, so to shlep, I, you know, is to what? To carry the, oh, to what? Shlug. To, to spin, to turn, to. Okay, so. Or to smite. To, to, to shluk, so it's kaparot in Hebrew, kaporis in Yiddish, kaparot. So you, what you're doing is you take the kids or their clothing. And you take the live chicken and you swing it over the child or their clothing if the child isn't present. And what you do is transfer everything bad that should come to that child onto the chicken. And then you kill it. Kill it. You go, break its go neck. Go to Robertson and you can still see it happening. Or real life chicken. So this was around. This was around Yom Kippur. Definitely, it's custom. It's minhag. It is minhag. Totally minhag. So it's not right. There's no halacha that says you shall do this. It is. It is a custom. It was. It's a. It's a remnant of the understanding of the spooky power, right? Of stuff collecting. And what you're doing is saying, I'll do anything to take it off of my child. Could you call that a superstition? I find that a pejorative term that I try to stay away from. Um, I think a lot of our people would say, yes, it's superstitious, and they're embarrassed by it. I, I'm just somebody who thinks that we have lots of instincts and needs for ritualizing those instincts, and our instinct to protect our children you know, has lots of levels, and frankly, I wish, I wish for one. You know, what I mean, I wish I had one to to feel like I was effectively saving Eliana from the horrible stuff that can happen. You know, I just don't have one because I'm too, I'm not superstitious enough. You know? <laughs> um, but I, but I do find that word to be a little bit in our age of reason. I find that word to be pejorative and judging in a way that I don't like to. Use. Mapitum before I'm born. Are you kidding? I had one that I wore the whole time I was pregnant. The whole time. 
You better believe I wore it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a dangerous pregnancy. You better believe I had that red ribbon around my wrist the whole time. We we have one around our on my daughter's crib. A a six months. And then someone gave me a you know a thing a kabbalistic you know permutation of whatever. Boom! That went right up. You kidding? Yes, ma'am. Does that work on teenagers too? All right, so um, I'm spending lots of time on this. I know we're not moving forward a lot in the text, but it's because the text keeps repeating these kinds of rituals. So it's it, what we're trying. What I'm trying to have us stay with is their worldview of taking this blood of the sacrifice. Remember the have you if you've been to Israel, um, you've seen the color of the stone in Israel. The stone is very light, right? It's that limestone. So it's a very light stone. You take the blood of an animal and dash it against that. It's like taking that wall over there and dashing you know, blood against it. It is extraordinarily powerful visually. right? It's the, the opposites. You know? And so it is a visual representation right, of the power that they understood that life force to have. And that by dashing it against the altar, it is again, in a way, like, you know, I, I always imagine like some imaginary smoke. You know, as soon as they do this, going, <laughs> you know, that the blood has this, you know, energy field that goes out from it that just like, <laughs> and cleans, you know, all of the space from all of that creepy ickiness that comes in. Sarah? This is the traditional housewife question that I've been Okay. I, I read ahead and there's a lot of this. Who cleans it up? <laughs> who cleans it up? It's an excellent question. Any guesses who cleans it up? The Levites. The Levites. Now, we do get a description of women who did cleaning at the entrance to the outer thing of the tent. They do washing and cleaning there, but they're not allowed inside the outer boundary of the Mishkan. Only the Levite men are allowed in that enclosure. So all of that work was done by the Levites. There's a wonderful video that you can watch on YouTube um, that is a description of every single job of every single kind of Levite involved in the temple service. So I know we're talking Mishkan, but, but they're, they're parallel. So, you know, everything done in the temple paralleled the Mishkan. So, um, so if you watch that video, it's like, I never even thought about, you talk about this many animals, you talk about a ramp up to the altar, how the heck do they get the ashes off of there, you know, like if you offer a bull as an ola, right? You're nobody's eating any part of it. The Holocaust is completely burned up. That, that, that's if you do that a lot. What happens? So there's this whole thing about who collects it and how often and what's done with it and where it's carried to and where it goes and what and it's just it's unbelievable how much there was in the temple complex, right? To to deal with. And a lot of it is about cleaning up. A lot of it. Do we know the, the source of this idea about blood? I mean, if you think about it logically, people would see that 
when a person's blood runs out of their body, they die. Correct. So you would assume that they knew enough to know that you don't have blood, you don't live. Right. But, but, which is kind of a practical <coughs> observational thing. But was there something else or did it come from that? My guess is that's where it originates because if you look in most ancient, most primitive, forget ancient, most primitive cultures and religions have a component of blood being one of the most potent forces around. Um, that's why at puberty there was always a blood ritual performed on boys of some kind, scarring, um, circumcision, uh, rites that involved blood and danger, because um, blood and danger are tied. Uh, this is why menstrual blood, they believe, was so uh, feared. Is it because for seven days women bleed but do not die? That is the only time people bleed for seven days and aren't very weak, very sick, or dead at the end of it. And that was just like, whoa, right? So they had to be, that was completely taboo because it was way too spooky, way too powerful. So that had to be, it was power at one point in, under matriarchal societies, it was very powerful especially the first menstrual blood, and then after that, in patriarchy, that had to be contained. The red tent is this whole idea of, of um, segregating women who were taboo because they were menstruating. If we fast forward mm -hmm. for a second, okay, so the, in the rabbinic period, prayer replaces sacrifice, which is the type of Judaism that we practice today. Correct. What replaces the blood? I mean, did, well, it's, it's, or was that just dropped it's, it's prayer, as a component? Right? It's my understanding is that it's the, it, it's pracrifice sort of, in, in general, replaced the sacrifice. All of the sacrificial the rites. But it is an interesting question. It's an interesting question. What is the purgative? Like well, the, is it our regret? Well, there was also no need because there was no more temple. So, that, I mean, but I guess. But if we're going to look at the parallel, sure. I'd love to. I'd love to see Bert your article on that. <laughs> <laughs> what is the purgative agent in prayer? When you get if prayer now takes the place of like, what, what's the blood? Is the purgative agent. Okay, maybe it's prayer itself. Maybe it's the actual saying of it, whether you feel anything or not. Okay. Some rabbis certainly argue that. That's why you have to say every single word out loud. Speed mumble davening comes from, you have to say every single word of the liturgy. That is what is efficacious. doesn't matter if you feel anything or not. But, of course, the Hasidic masters and the mystics would argue, of course you have to have your intention. Your kavana is what fuels the efficacy of the prayer. All right, so that would be a lovely discussion to have one day. Okay, you have to say it loud enough so you can hear it. Yes, that's why you have to so mumble it's it. The hearing. That's why. So maybe, you have maybe, to, your maybe, own ear has to it's hear the it. the hearing, not the speaking. It's hard to do one without the other. No, no it's easy to speak without hearing yourself. It's hard, it's hard it's to hear. It's easy to mumble without knowing It's hard to hear without speaking. That's, yeah. Well, you have to listen for it. To hear it, you have to have spoken it. <laughs> All right, so... This, this ritual at 19, right, we get another ram. Again, Aaron and his sons lay their hands on it, right? Did they do smicha? 
and they slaughter, or so they don't do smicha, they're, they're doing the, the other thing of um, identifying the animal or, you know, shifting their whatever onto it. They slaughter the ram and they take some of its blood and they put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear, on, the, on his son's ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then the rest is dashed against the altar, right? This incredibly powerful act of taking that blood and literally, right, marking Aaron and his sons in this odd way as a way of consecrating them to God's service. Why the big toe? Why, why the why big the right toe? Side? Why the right side? Why the right side? <laughs> the left side was uh, evil. If, if, yeah. if you were left handed. So that, oh, the end, yeah. So hence, when you're a lefty, you were, you got, they fell the other way. way. You were killed. That's yeah. right. They would kill you. Or they would cut. That's yeah. right. It was evil. It was bad. The, the left side was evil. Hand. The right side was good. If the if the first time they laid their hands on, on the first ram was transference, why is it the second time? Because you really got transference, so why do they need to do it again? No, it's also it's also um, it's the identification also identification. This, this is like for this the, is my this is my ram to be sacrificed. Right, and so there's different re, there's different reasons they're offered right, right. here. So um, so the uh, first one is the Expiation. is the ola is right. the um, Holocaust, right. Um, right? And so then the next one, this next one that we have at 19, um, is the ram of ordination. Right. And the, the kind of offering it is, the flavor of offering it is, is a shlamim offering. When do we offer a shlamim? An offering of well-being. An offering of greeting is how Tikva Freimarkinsky would talk about it, of blessed memory. So... So it so it's not a sin offering. This is right out of a sense of gratitude, of fullness, of wholeness, of coming together to eat with God out of a sense of things being good. So you might offer a shlamim sacrifice after a victory in battle, right? After a birth of a child, right? You so you you know you you're giving thanks in a way. Your things are good. So you've really moved on fast from the sin thing. Right? So they are going to be ordained. So they are now in gratitude of their service. Hmm. Well, that's fast. I mean, it's this, I mean, it's the, it's this, it's the sin, it's the sin thing only if you <coughs> interpret the first of the Allah as a removal of sin. You could, or could, could you also interpret it as, is that, you know, ultimately God owns everything. And this is merely a representation of the fact that even though we raise this ram, it's not even ours. Correct. This is just a, re- this is just a representation that God can have all of it. And then you go on to the second one for the ordination. So, so there's three. So, we, so, so there's sin, then there's Olah, and then there's Shlamim. There's three sacrifices. So they do deal with, first, the need to be in right relationship, right, to repair the breach. So the sin offering is offered first. Then the olah, the ram that, so the bull is the sin offering. The ram is the olah, is the holocaust, 
right? It all belongs to God anyway, right? Now that I, even though my sin is gone, I understand that none of it belongs to me. So I offer this completely to God. I offer myself completely to God, right? It's completely God's. And then the Zevach Shlamim, the, 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 all, the whole thing culminates in the Zevach Shlamim, which was accompanied by elaborate ritual, right? This whole, you know, business, like it's this last offering of well-being, of greeting, mm-hmm. that where, where the blood comes to be placed on, on the priests, right? It's the culmination of the whole business. In the, in, at this stage of their development as a people, how much residual memory is there of the willingness of uh, Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and or Isaac's willingness to be on the, be on the stone? So I would rephrase it okay. and say, the people who slaughter these animals tell a story about a father who was willing to slaughter his son. Mm-hmm. Do you see, you see what I'm saying? Like it's, if we don't take Abraham as history, oh, okay, I see what then what we say is, that's why what I'm saying to you is yeah. I think there's a very strong connection mm-hmm. that the story they tell about Abraham is a story about this binding his son on the altar. Mm-hmm. So the question is, as they're telling that story, how fresh is this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? I think very fresh. I just have a question. What is your take on why not the right cheek and right thigh and ankle? So there's some beautiful interpretations that I really love, which is that in doing so, it it is marking the priest's ear so that he should constantly be listening for the word of God. Listening for instruction, listening to the people, right? That he should be listening with an ear that is consecrated. So for me, I sometimes think about this around, you know, Yom Kippur and stuff. It's like, what would it mean to listen this 10 days of repentance with ears that are consecrated? What would I not listen to? And there's a long list, right? One year I gave up listening to NPR in the morning. (laughs) And I haven't gone back to it. Because I realized I was starting my day too often with bad news. Or, or with things that were just kind of like, this isn't, I realized once I gave it up, I was listening to stuff that changed my perspective on the day. And so, and I didn't want that. You know, I would listen in the afternoon, but not in the morning. And so, um, so listening constantly with ears that are consecrated to God's service. How am I acting in the world? The opposing thumb is the only way we can make tools and use them, right? The, the reason we have civilization is because we developed this opposable thumb. So that is how we impact the world, right? We grasp and we manipulate things so that our will becomes manifest in the world. May my hands always be doing work in the world that is consecrated to God's service. You want to go for the foot? May the paths I walk in be the paths of a person consecrated to God's service. May the path I walk be the path of service of the divine always. Her paths are paths of peace, or of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Right. So when I walk that path, Literally and metaphorically, when I walk that path, that is how it will go well 
both with me and with the people I serve. Because let's be clear, the priest is serving God by serving the people. And that's what his life is dedicated to, is helping the people come into right relationship with God. And he must remain in a condition to do that. Because without that intermediary, there's distance between God and the people. And so for us, you know, Rabbi Gold, Shefa Gold talks a lot about consecrating ourselves as people ready and willing and consecrated to the service of the one, of the whole, capital W. And so in what ways am I listening with those ears? In what ways are my actions in this world reflective of that? And what, what paths am I walking? Where do I go? How do I get there? Um, and where don't I go? And where don't I go? Where do I refuse to go? Beautiful. So it's... Um, and, and I can't imagine that it's not close to accurate. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it makes so, once you unpack it, it makes so much sense that that's a powerful ritual, right? To mark that with blood says, your hands belong to me, says God, you know, with that blood. Your feet, your legs and where they take you belong to me. That is a powerful statement of what Aaron and his priests are to be about and what now is on each of us as a nation of priests to be about. All right, what time are we at? 40, uh, hmm? 20 of? 41. 41, all right. 19. Okay, so, um, so we're going to get a very um, clear understanding at verse 22 that from, all, from this ram, we're going to take the protuberance on the liver and the two kidneys with the fat on them, right? Why are we taking those? And burning them up? They're the good stuff. They're the good stuff. The fat is the good stuff. That gets turned into reach nichoach, a wonderful smell, right? Gribbonous. Except it goes to God, right? The fat goes to God. Because that gets turned into smoke. And any of you who have passed a grill, I don't know about you, but I can smell it from miles away. That fat on the fire. Reach nichoach. There is no smell like that. My mouth starts watering before my brain even registers. Um, so it's, that, it's the fat. That's what smells so good. So that is given to God as an offering of smell, right? So it's turned into smoke, so it goes up, right? So that's offered to God. Why the kidneys and the protuberance on the liver, those were the good stuff not to eat, but to use for divination. You open the animal and you look at the liver, the protuberance on the liver, which is a finger-like thing, apparently. Um, much of my anatomy comes from Leviticus. <laughs> um, and, and the kidneys and the entrails, they were used for the purposes of divination. Therefore, it must be made clear in the rite and ritual of the cult of ancient Israel God forbid a hundred times people think you're slaughtering and opening the animal to do divination. So you took those things and you burned them up on the altar. 
to make it very clear we are not doing what the folks down the road are doing with this liver. Right? And hopefully you didn't look at them first. <laughs> <laughs> but I caught a peek as it was going by. Um, so whenever we see this in Torah, whenever you see something that looks really bizarre like that, right, it's like, okay, huh. Um, what, what might have been going on with that? Right? Okay. So then we get the, the sacral vestments, and then uh, the, the, they're going to need to be sacralized, right? And they become um, sanctified and need to be set aside. Uh, and then we get the closing of the whole ordination business with God saying, For there I will meet with you. We're at verse 42. And there I will speak with you. And there I will meet with the Israelites. And it shall be sanctified by my presence. So what actually sanctifies the whole business is God's presence coming to rest within the precinct. I will sanctify the tent of meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. I will abide among the Israelites, literally within the descendants of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I, Yudhei-Vavhei, am their God, who brought them out from the land of Egypt. L'shochni betocham, that I might dwell within them. I, Yudhei-Vavhei, their God. Um, this, is, this is probably a grammatical question, which I don't know since I don't know Hebrew well enough to answer it, but when it is translated uh, at the end of 46 that um, brought them out from the land of Egypt that I might abide among them. It's like in order that. Yes. Right? So um, he couldn't abide with them before? So the rabbis ask this question all the time. Why not give Torah in Egypt? Well, I mean, that, I mean, that we've got the ex- So, in other words, he has to, so he can't, he can't abide with them sort of essentially until Torah is given. And Torah can't so, be given until they're free. So why and, not do all that in Egypt? Right. I mean, because they're not free yet. No, but, that, but, that's, that's, but that's arguing after the fact and after God's abilities. Right, but so the rabbis go to that question in order to answer it with God cannot be present among them the same way while they are slaves because they are not free to build their society. They are not free to build a society and behave in ways that are dictated by that as their authority. Pharaoh is their authority. So we have a much different understanding, of course, in our time about what it means to have God dwelling within all of us no matter where we are. The rabbis love a verse of Torah that says that the Shekhinah went into exile with the Jewish people, you know, Mm -hmm. that God descends into the suffering with us. Um, But there is this awareness that God can't do, it's not like God wasn't with Abraham. So it's not that God can't be with them until Sinai. It's that they are now becoming a people of God. Among whom he can dwell. Among whom, right. This is now a people among whom God can dwell in a way that God can only when they are free to build their society, their community based in these rituals and values. 
Yes, Rosanna. Is this three-stage uh, ritual done just at the opening of the Mishkan, or is this done regularly throughout the rest of the Only life? at the only opening of the Mishkan, time. yes. This was only done this one time? Yes. <clears throat> wow, so there's all this instruction just for opening night. <laughs> yes, and it's a seven-day process, okay. right? It's a week okay. of, of this event, opening week. Um, exactly. Um, at, at the, and, and so at the temple as well. When Solomon built the temple, he needed to figure out how to do opening night. What did he do? Oh, we had some texts about that. So if we ever rebuild the temple. So, so when the temple was destroyed, and then they were invited back, and then they rebuilt the temple, the Maccabees took the temple, and they cleansed it, and they needed to consecrate it, reopen it. What did they do? A seven-day festival. This is how we get Hanukkah as the festival of consecration. That's right. That's exact. So, wait a minute. We know something about consecrating. Let's go back. So Solomon does it. Then the Maccabees go, oh, wait, we know something about uh, opening a temple. Solomon did it. So we get this, right, this long festival about um, about that. All right, so... Um, Can I go back just one second to this question about God giving Torah in Egypt? Yes. Because I read this a different way. Yes. In that what, what this is saying is the reason that we were freed from slaves is to get the Torah. But that doesn't go to the question, why not give it there? No. I think is it, this is answering a different question. Mm-hmm. The question here is, why were we freed from slavery? So, was it just to be free? Was no. it to go to Las Vegas? No. What was the purpose of all of this? So for me, that's the question that Torah answers. Right. Why were we freed? Asher hotzeiti etchem me'eretz mitzrayim lihiyot lachem le'elohim. I took you out of Egypt in order that you that I would be to you God, not Pharaoh. So it is clear. Torah's standpoint is absolutely clear that freedom on its own is not the value. It is freedom, not freedom from, that, that Torah is interested in. It's freedom to. I mean, it's a both and, obviously. But what we talk about a lot in America, 2013, is freedom from. And not a whole lot about freedom to. Freedom to do what? Not just anything, but to be creating the kind of society that is indicative of the awareness of God's presence dwelling and the possibility of God's presence dwelling within it. Which implies a degree of responsibility. It certainly And does. that we owe something. That's right. For our freedom. That's right. All right, so the copier did not listen to me. It does this sometimes. I don't understand it. Um, it's Purim. You know? I didn't even get it. But the copier went, it's Purim. I don't care that you said two-sided. Um, so that means take four sheets of paper. If you don't want them, leave them. I will reuse them in my computer you know, and to print on. So don't worry about leaving them if you don't want them. Uh, oh, wait. So do you need a stack? Yeah. So take four. 
I'm giving you a couple of things. Um, I'm not going to go into it because Bert, my teacher, Bert Kleinman, has, um, in, has told me often that I, I tend to take a big jump from uh, 3,000 years ago to Aviva Zorenberg, um, who is like this amazing uh, teacher, but who very much is in a completely different realm. So I'm going to give you Aviva Zorenberg. At some point, I will give it to you again when we go through it together, but I wanted you to have it on the heels of our discussing the whole idea of Mishkan as, as a thing. And I'm going to draw your attention to the, the paragraph that starts the desire to contain God. Yes? So she has this beautiful interpretation of the Mishkan as the physical, it's this sheet, As the physical, the physical representation of humanity's, in our case, the Israelites' desire to contain God. So what they create is space. <clears throat> what she calls an erotic feminine response to the desire to contain God. The Mishkan, what does it do? When you set that partition in the middle of open space, you're delineating space. You're creating emptiness in which to welcome the divine presence that the divine might fill that space. She sees this in erotic terms, and I find it very compelling and very powerful that really at our core... There is an emptiness. There is a space that longs to be filled with the divine presence. Use whatever language you want to use for divine presence. I don't care. There is a space within us that longs to be filled with almost an erotic sense of urgency and desire. Call it purpose, meaning. Inspector Frankel. Man in search of meaning. Right? So, bless you, Sarah. Again, gesundheit. So, um, so for me, it's just another level at which to think about the Mishkan, but also for us to think about K.I., to think about this space that we create, this circle that we create, the sacred circle we create once a month, the, the circle we create when we stand for Kaddish, right? There... We create these spaces and, and acknowledge a longing, a desire for us as a people, a community to be filled. <clears throat> and, um, and cultivating that desire is part of spiritual practice, is what I want to suggest. That's what Aviva Zorenberg is suggesting. Um, and then, of course, opening ourselves to the possibility of being filled with that. So we fill ourselves with texts and study and song and ritual and food and each other's company, right? And, and that is how we are filled. But we have to create the space for desire. And for me, that is the obligation right now of Shabbat in an urgency unknown in human history until now. We fill every second 
And every pause with something, most of us, some don't. Most of us are reaching for that device because our brains are hardwired to go, who texted? Who's that email from? I wonder if, right? Our brains are designed for that. It's designed to scan the savanna so, we don't, so we're not lunch, right? So our brains are doing what they're supposed to do. Oh, I wonder what that is. I wonder what that is. I wonder who called, right? But now we've got technology to constantly give the brain a fix, a shot, a hit of wonder who, wonder who. I can go look. I can go see. And so there's this compelling drive to fill every second. And we don't, therefore, create the space for desire. Much less the opportunity to be filled with something other than all of all of. So I offer you Aviva Zorenberg, I offer you her framing of the whole idea of Mishkan uh, in a way that I find beautiful and, and very powerful. Um, now turning to uh, Rabbi Howard Cohen. He asked the same question that Pam Witt asked. Why the ear, the blood, the thumb, the toe? And he quotes our Parsha. Sorry, he quotes Sarna on our Parsha. Towards the end of the second paragraph, Sarna proposes an insightful interpretation of the meaning of this ritual. He suggests that it symbolizes the idea that the priest is to attune himself to the divine word and be responsive to it in deed and direction in life. In other words, devote his mind, body, and soul to holy work. Attuning ourselves to the divine word and then being responsive to it, indeed in direction in life, is as relevant to us today as it was in the ancient world. Too often, we turn a deaf ear to the divine voice calling us, so to speak, to live a more holy life, fail to use our hands for holy, healing, constructive purposes, and wander aimlessly in no particular direction. Unfortunately, we do not have as visceral a ritual as our ancestors had to help us with this task. We do, however, have prayer, our main tool for striving to bring the mind, body, and soul together. Prayer takes many forms, so this need not refer to only the kind that happens in the synagogue. However, communal worship or, the, or prayer, when it is done in a meaningful way and is integrated into a person's life, is a great example of a ritualized act that has tremendous potential. This is not surprising since offerings of words in the form of prayers is what the earliest rabbis identified as the closest substitute for sacrifices after the Second Temple was destroyed. 